Welcome to the teaching ministry at Magnolia's First. We hope the next few minutes will help you take your next steps on your faith journey. And we would love to help you take those next steps. Just head over to m1bc.org and fill out the connect form and a pastor will get in touch with you very soon. Or you can text us at 281-343-3033. Well, good morning, church family. I uh, really want to thank you that over the last several weeks you've allowed us to walk through this series, This I Know, as we've been thinking about the great doctrines that, that shape our church and shape church history. And today we're going to be talking about grace and what God's Word says about grace. And I want you to know it's going to be good news. Have you ever gone to church and all you thought you heard was bad news? Not this church, other people. But it, it is good news. And I, I thought about that. I thought about two brothers that grew up in the same house, same town, same parents, but they turned out so different. One was very outgoing. One was very quiet, shy, and reserved. The outgoing one, as soon as he could, he moved out of town. He went out and he made his fortune and he did well. The other one was more of a homebody, never married, when his father passed away, he moved in with mom, brought his cat, and they just had a good old time. So he's taking care of mom. The other one's out there making a living. But he came to the place where the older one thought, you know, he has spent all this time taking care of mom, and I need to do something nice for him. So he called him up and said, hey, I'm going to send you on a 30-day cruise. It's going to be great. And he said, well, what, what do I do about mom? And he said, don't worry, I'll take care of mom. I'll come over. I'll, I can take a month off. He said, what about my cat? You don't even like my cat. No, no, I'll, I'll take care of your cat. Don't worry. Everything will be fine. And so they're going along, and the younger brother's on the cruise. He's having a great time. He got to an embarkation point where after about two weeks, he called in and said to his brother, how's it going? He said, oh, it's just fine, but your cat's dead. And he said, what? He said, your cat's dead. He goes, whoa, that's not how you tell somebody bad news. He said, well, what do you think I should have done? He said, well, you should have said, well, there's Frisky. I'm looking through the window, and she's out there playing in the yard. And, oh, look, Frisky's climbing up a tree. Oh, look, Frisky's jumped on the roof. Oh, no, Frisky fell off the roof. Poor Frisky. That's how you tell bad news. He said, oh, okay. He said, how's mom doing? He said, oh, look, mom, she's playing in the yard. Well, I want you to know that there's no hidden bad news here. There's just good news that God's grace is available to every person that can hear my voice. That he loves you. That he wants you to know him. He wants you to have a relationship with him. And his word teaches us how we can know and experience his grace. We're going to be in second, excuse me, in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And we're going to be focused on verses 8 and 9, but let me read to you from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. 
But God, who is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united in Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. And then our focus point God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. And today, as we listen to your word, may we cling to the amazing grace that you have given to us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. For Jesus, in your name we pray, in your name alone. Amen. God's grace. What is grace? Well, the short version would be this. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is favor that God gives us that we don't earn, we don't deserve, we don't somehow demonstrate uh, our worth. It's because he loves us and because he wants us to experience grace, he gives grace. But who needs grace? Well, the Bible says we all need grace. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The Bible says none of us have ever lived a perfect life, but all of us have lived faulty lives. That when we do the things that hurt the heart of God, it's called sin. And all of us have sinned. It also says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So while I owed this debt, God paid that debt through the life of his son that was offered on the cross who lived a perfect life, sinless perfection, who gave himself as a sacrifice, who died on the cross, was buried, and raised again after three days, that if anyone would call upon his name and receive him as Savior, they could know God's grace. 1 John 2, 2 says this about Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And he uses a word there, atoning, atoning sacrifice. And that word there is the word that we would use when we talk about the word reconciliation. It means literally that there was a balance sheet in which at the bottom we owed, and God reconciled that owe and that debt by the life of Jesus Christ. Similar to uh, the what you would do in a checkbook. Now, I'm just kind of curious. In the first service, there's a lot of checkbook users. I'm guessing that we're a little bit mixed in here. I'm just curious, how many of you still use a checkbook? Okay, all right. Well, you know, we're not totally alone, but you're out there. Uh, 
Most of us pay our stuff online. But what I've discovered is this, whether you use a checkbook or not, it's really important that you reconcile your accounts and that you know what you have. Matter of fact, I've been in line behind people that were pulling up their balance on their phone so they could tell whether or not they could buy what they were about to buy. And I thought, man, I'll give you money for gum. I mean, if you're down to that, I'll take care of you. But there are some people, they reconcile their accounts every night. They're looking at their account balance. They know what's taking place. Other people, when they reconcile their bank statements, they just simply change banks. <laughs> it's just easier. They look forward to moving so they can change banks. It's just different. But the Bible says that we need to be reconciled to God. And wouldn't you think when it comes to the point of reconciliation to be right in the presence of God, that it'd be important to know for sure whether or not you are. I thought about that when I read a book by Jack Welch called Winning. You not, may not remember Jack Welch, but for 20 years he was the CEO of General Electric. He was rather infamous about the demands he would make upon those people who were in management with him. And I had an uncle that was one of his managers for a while, and, and he would expect if he came into a meeting and he asked you a question about your division, you better have an answer. Because if you didn't have an answer, you may not have a job. I found that interesting because in an interview, he was asked this question, will you go to heaven? His response was, I'm not perfect, but if there are any points given for caring about people with every fiber of your being and giving life all you've got every day, then I suppose I have a shot. I thought, oh, bless your heart, Jack. You got a shot? The most important decision you can ever make, the most lasting decision you'll ever have is where you're going to spend eternity, and you're thinking, I hope it works out. You're fired. Go find some truth. How far different was that than another CEO, a captain of industry, literally captain of a ship, named John Newton who in 1748, when the storm came up, he was down in the hold on his knees crying out to God as he's reading through Thomas Kempis, The Imitation of Christ. In that moment, that storm-tossed sea, he gave his heart to Jesus, and he asked Jesus to give him his grace. Newton was a slaver. And he tried to reconcile his Christian faith with his, hap, with his uh, work of slaving. He started worship services on the boat. He demanded humane treatment, but very quickly he just came to the place where he said, there's no way to reconcile what Jesus says about the way we're to treat each other and the, the abhorrent reality of slavery. So he cast it aside. He became an Anglican minister and not, didn't take too long till he got into some hot water with his Anglican brothers. Because you see, for hundreds of years, they'd all been singing out of the Stern Holden Hopkins Psalter. It was basically a chorus book. And he wanted to introduce a new kind of music into his church that he said spoke from the heart, and it was called a hymn. He didn't like them. But he wrote a hymn, a hymn that you've sung, a hymn that you would know 
the hymn that's the most sung that's ever been sung. It's called Amazing Grace. And that very first verse, it says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. At the end of his life, when he was being talked with, they asked him what he thought about what was coming. He said this, my memory is almost gone, but there's one thing I know. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. John Newton had no question. I know where I'll spend eternity. It'll be with my Savior because of his grace. I will tell you that when it comes to eternity, you don't want to wonder if you know. You want to be able to know that you know where you will spend your future. God's grace makes it possible for you to know that. So who can receive grace? Because there's some people that would say that grace is limited. It can only come to some. Some would say, no, grace is open and available to everybody. Some would say, no, we have to be chosen. Others say, no, we can choose. So, so what do you do? Well, there's been some different discussion about how do you do understand grace. There's been different labels that have been put in. Two of them came from two characters that you may not know too well, but one of them is by the name of John Calvin. The other is Jacobus Arminius. Now, these may not look like guys that you would have over for Thanksgiving, but I want you to know they are both interesting men to read. What John Calvin said was, is that the way grace works is that salvation is only available to people whom God has predestined, that he has forechosen for grace, and that there's nothing that you do to get grace. By the way, I'm not over here because you're part of that group, okay? I'm just going to do an illustration in a minute, so I'm just, just stopping there for a minute. But in that, he said that what happened was that in the fall, that our will was corrupted as well, and we had no ability whatsoever on our own ability to even choose Jesus, but only God can do that through us. Arminius came over here, and he was a student of actually of John Calvin's son-in-law. And as he studied the theology, as he began to read through the book of Romans, he came, uh, though initially a Calvinist, he became uh, uh, in a different viewpoint where he focused on free will, and he said the reality is his free will is a human agency that's instrumental in, in you getting grace. Calvin would say, unless God chooses you and he enables you, you can't be saved. Arminius would say, God is willing to save all, and if you'll say yes to Jesus, you can have them. So there's these two different viewpoints. How do you approach it, though, to understand it? Because the reality is, is that these are conversations that happen directly and indirectly in church. Well, let me give you a couple of thoughts about how to approach this. The first is what happens most of the time in church, and it's a contrasting viewpoint. It focuses on opposing viewpoints. It's the idea that if you got, you know, free will, where's that at? Free will over here. You can't reconcile that to election 
over here. And so what would happen is the elect group would say, well, let's just look at the Bible. Romans 8, 29 says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's clear. The free will would say, oh, but wait a minute. How about John 3, 16 and 17? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God loved the world. Whosoever. They would read Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purposes of his will. The elect group. The free will group response, Romans 10, 13, for whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I'm going to tell you, I can go this way for quite a while. I'm not going to do that because both of these show up very clearly within the text. So how do you reconcile these approaches? Well, let me give you a way to think it through. The first is, is the complementary focus or a parallel viewpoint. Then instead of putting them at odds with each other, you see them working concurrently with each other. It's a complementary view. They work together in parallel. And there are some names of some pastors that you know, that you've heard their names, that you would go, oh, I know that name. This was their viewpoint. Names like John Bassanio or the very late blessed Charles Stanley would come from this viewpoint, that these run parallel. They don't touch, but they run parallel. I'm going to pull to an older preacher you may or may not have heard of from the 18th century, or 19th century rather. His name is Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon said this, free will and election are like two parallel lines who don't seem to meet but find they're coming together in heaven. When asked how he could reconcile free will and election, Spurgeon replied, you don't have to reconcile friends. And he would say, you're both, that these two friends are walking down the path, they aren't touching, but they're both on their way to heaven, and when they get to heaven, then we'll understand how they come together. We just don't understand it right now. And in philosophy, we call that an antinomy. An antinomy is, occurs when two principles which appear in contradiction are equally true, logical, reasonable, or necessary. In theology, we take that, and I'm going to quote J.I. Packer from this in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says this, for the whole point of an antinomy in theology is that it is not a real contradiction, though it looks like one. It's an apparent incompatibility between two apparent truths. An antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable. I did it again. I couldn't say this word in the first service. 
irreconcilable. Second temp, that's good. I don't, has that ever happened to you? It happens to me sometimes when they ask me what my name is. But anyway, that these two aren't irreconcilable, but they're both yet undeniable. They're both true inside the same moment. Instead of being at odds with each other, they actually complement each other, and they're both needed to be understood if I'm going to understand grace. An illustration of that that was promoted by H.A. Ironside, and you probably have heard this. He says, imagine what it would be like if you were walking up to the gates of heaven, and above it you would see this verse for, in Romans 10, 13. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But after you enter the gates and you look back, you see a different verse, which is Ephesians 1, 4, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Do we choose? Yes. Are we chosen? Yes. Both are happening. One more quote from Spurgeon. In Faith and Regeneration, he said this, Brethren, be willing to see both sides of the shield of truth. Rise above the babyhood which cannot believe two doctrines until it sees the connecting link. Have you not two eyes, man? Must you needs put out one of them in order to see clearly? But I've met people that are so focused on their particular truth, they seem to be willing to be blinded from anything else. But we are to understand grace works together. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give you one more little uh, construct to work with. And I, I just want to confess something very quickly. If you go into my office and you look in my library, you probably already figured out you're going to see some bound versions of the sermons of Spurgeon on my bookshelves, and you will. I can promise you, nowhere will you ever find a bound set of my sermons on anybody's shelf, including my mother. They're not there. But I want to give you something to, to think about, and here's why. It's because even with the parallel view, which I fully agree with, the focus, if you're not careful, is on what divides them. And so I want to give you one more thought, and that is a corresponding view, focusing on the integrated viewpoint. These, the same parallel line just turned a little bit. They still don't touch, but they interweave, and they form a tapestry. And here's what I would say with that is this. I think you're going to be surprised to find out everything God did to woo you to him. I think you're going to be surprised one day that all of us are going to be surprised one day by all the ways that God worked in our life so he could draw us to him so that we could fully love him. And yes, we had to say yes. But like Spurgeon said, when the psalmist said, surely grace and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, Spurgeon said, it's like the hounds of heaven have been set upon me. So I cannot escape that grace of God. He loves you so much. He wants so much for you to know him. He loves you. And he will do anything and did anything to bring you to him. 
Isaiah 55, 8 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I will tell you, we serve a God too big for any system. And sometimes, as much as systems help us understand things, help us get a grasp on things, every time we try to push God into a system, he blows it up and says, but I'm still the eternal one. I am bigger than your box. At this church, you are committed to a doctrinal understanding that both free will and election work together in complementary month. That they come together in the mystery of God's grace and the call to everyone to become a Christ follower. That's who we are as a church family. And so it's not unreasonable as a church family for the church to be able to expect that every teacher that teaches under the authority of this church before the Lord teaches an understanding of free will and election coming together, not one absent of the other, but the reality that we can trust God for our salvation, but we must choose salvation to have it. Because all of us need grace. We're saved by grace. The Bible says we're kept by grace. And literally the Bible says he preserves us by his grace. We are preserved by God's grace. In Philippians 1, 6 it says, And I am sure of this, that he that began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What happens though when I get off track? I had a great conversation after the first service where someone says, well, what if someone's not bearing fruit? Are they a Christian? What if someone is not demonstrating the truth of God in their life? Does that mean that, that they are a believer or not? And what I looked at them and said, I said, you know, the reality is according to the scripture, if you know Jesus, you are going to walk like a child of Jesus. But the Bible also says that it's possible for you and I to drift away. And it's possible for us to move away from the grace that we have received and not move, not to lose that grace, but rather to act in a way that doesn't demonstrate that grace. I remember as a senior in high school sitting in a Bible study, and uh, one, one of the men that was teaching me was a great man of God, loved the Lord, and he went through a list of things you would do if you were a Christian and a list of things you wouldn't do if you knew Jesus. And he said, there's no way you can know Jesus and do this list. If you know Jesus, you're going to do that list. And I raised my hand. I said, brother, I've lived in both lists. But I got saved at six, and it took. I know what it's like to drift. I also know what it's like, as we sung, to be found. And you need to know something today. You may be drifting. God is looking for you. And by the way, he does, he's, not, he, he's not unaware of where you are. You never get far away from him to where he can't find you. He's right there with you. Wherever you go, he's there with you. And in this moment, at this moment right now, he is trying to say to you, come back. I'll welcome you. But I will preserve you. Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Listen, listen. You can't run far enough to get away from the grace of God. 
And when you become his child, you're his child. Once you're his, you're his. It's kind of like what happens here. When you take your child to the preschool area, guess what? When you leave, you take them. You may have a child that you looked at and thought, who raised you? They're yours. And God's kids sometimes does, will do things that we go, why did you do that? And I'm sure the Lord's going, why did you do that? I've read Psalms. He's a lot of, why? But he loves us. You can't lose what God bought on the cross. We're fragile. We are fragile carriers of God's grace. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. It says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. The Bible doesn't describe us as strong folk. It describes us as fragile, fragile, fragile jars of clay. And it's not just that we're made of dust. It's just this remembrance in my weakness, he is made strong. Because it's never going to be about the glory of what I achieved. It will always be about the glory of what God has done and what he has done and for us. In 2 Corinthians 2, 14, it says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The Bible says that literally, that as you know Christ and Christ is in you, as you grow in Christ and you walk in Christ, that you're like a little aroma that is led off by which God pulls people over to show them who Jesus is. Listen, on occasion, on occasion, because I have allergies, I have a little sensitivity to perfume. Not bad, but a little bit. And I will tell you this, if I can smell your perfume, you've got some on. I mean, you got some on. And have you ever been in a room where somebody came by and as they left, what they left behind them, whatever it was they were wearing, you could smell it. Matter of fact, I found one person one time that used to go to my church just by following the odor. I thought, all right, she's been in here. Now she's been in. You know, you just, you get the trail. You can get it. The Lord wants you to put off the aroma of Jesus and his grace in such a way that when people are hurting and looking and wondering, they go, I've got to find you because I need what's in you. You're the aroma. And that's so important because when we talk about doctrinal matters and we talk about whether it's free will or election or the way things go, I will tell you that sometimes what happens is people mean well and they get very focused on what they believe and suddenly they become adamant to the place that there's no grace in that conversation. You don't sense any kind of latitude to see life any way but the way they see it. Matter of fact, one of the things that uh, I, I read through several about the problem with free will is that people would say, well, if it's free will, if there's anything that you do at all to gain your salvation by accepting Christ by your choice, then it could be that you could become arrogant because you think that somehow you help God save you. Now, let me, let me give, you, give you a thought. 
If you are on your face crawling through a desert, dying of thirst, and Jesus comes and offers you a cup of cold water, is your first thought going to be, man, am I glad I'm smart enough to make this choice? <laughs> or are you just grateful for the Savior who provided the relief you couldn't get on your own? God's grace. He calls us to a higher standard. Galatians 5.25 says, since we live by the Spirit, or live yeah, by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Because you see, there's going to be bumps. There's going to be times that we may disagree about something or see something differently. But remember, we carry this, this grace, this, this mercy in a clay jar. And so when we bump each other, what's supposed to splash out on each other is the mercy of God. That's why I need to stay filled up with the Spirit because bumps are going to happen. But let's just make sure that when we splash on people, we splash the grace of God. One final thought. We are channels of God's grace. In 2 Corinthians 5, as Dalton read earlier, but I'm going to go to the end of verse 19 and to verse 20. He has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Now think about that. You're an ambassador. If you know Jesus, you're an ambassador of the creator of the universe. And he wants you to make an appeal to this world of the truth of who he is. He wants you to represent him. He wants you to demonstrate his, his character. He wants you to be a walking revelation of his grace and his mercy working in your life. That's what he's called you here to do. How you doing? How you doing? If there was a spiritual snifter that somebody could come up and smell where you are in your relationship with Jesus, would it be a low odor day or a high odor day? You know, I want you to hear something. Please hear this. If you don't know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, he desperately wants you to know him. Today, he wants you to know him. If you have questions, you're in the right place because we may not have all the answers, but we know the one who does, and we want to talk to you. But I know that there may be some of us here, and we accepted Christ, but we have drifted, and we're not real sure how to get back. We're not even sure God would even want us back. And I want you to hear that God's grace is ready for you. And no matter how far you went away, once you're his, you're his. He just wants you back walking in fellowship, walking in a way that you can know him more and more every day. But it could be, it could be that today is a day in which you would say, I need grace. I, I know the Lord saved me. I, I, and I, am, I am walking with him, but I'm telling you, I'm at a place where I don't even know how to take the next step. I'm at a hard point. And I've wondered where God is. And I need to know that God is with me. I need to know 
that he is ready to help me take that next step. And you just need somebody to pray with. In just a moment, we're going to have deacon families up here. There'll be some in the uh, the balcony. But also, I just want to remind you, this is a church family. There's people around you right now that you could just look at and say, would you pray with me? This is what I'm struggling with. God wants you to know his grace. Let's stand together. Let's sing. Let's embrace the grace he offers to us. In Jesus' name.